Hello from the Oklahoma Summit on Access to Justice in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I'm John Williams, the Executive Director of the Oklahoma Bar Association, your host today. And I have a couple of really exciting guests, and I'm going to ask each of them to just give a brief introduction of who they are. Ryan, I'll start with you. I'm Ryan Gensler. I'm the Director of Open Justice Oklahoma at the Oklahoma Policy Institute. Hi, I'm Anna Carpenter. I'm a clinical law professor and access to justice researcher at the University of Tulsa College of Law. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here in Oklahoma City with you. And today we're talking about access to justice. Ryan, I know you have some unique information and the work that you've been doing. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what you've learned about access to justice in Oklahoma through the data you've collected? Yeah, so Open Justice Oklahoma started as a project to take court records. Uh, We have a very open court records website uh, in Oklahoma, OSCN, and it has tons of information about what's going on in our courts day to day, Uh, but nobody has really been using it to uh, understand you know, what's going on from kind of a 10,000 foot level. It's very easy to see the trees. Everyone sees the trees. Uh, We're trying to to get a view of the forest. So once we started looking at uh, civil justice uh, issues in Oklahoma, it it became very clear that there were some very big problems in how it's done. Uh, If we look at small claims courts, uh, for instance, we have uh, about 21,000 cases a year being filed in, in Tulsa County. About two-thirds of those are evictions, um, or eviction cases, uh, forcible entry and detainers. So a very huge volume of eviction cases. Uh, and we know from the data that we've collected that over half of them uh, end in default judgments uh, because the, usually because the tenant just doesn't show up. So it's a process that doesn't have a lot of uh, accountability. Uh, There's not a whole lot of oversight, but uh, it has very, very huge implications for the people, uh, for the defendants that it touches. You know, from my experience and and work that I did once upon a time when I was the executive director of Legal Aid, I I know housing issues are so important and, and it's so expensive to have people outside of housing. And tell us about a little bit about your employer and, and why you're interested in, in these issues. So uh, Oklahoma Policy Institute is a nonprofit think tank. We were founded about 10 years ago, uh, and we've focused mostly on tax and budget issues to start out with. You know, who's, get, who's paying for government services and, and how are they being funded? Uh, how well uh, are those being funded? Uh, we believe that Oklahoma can be a great state with good jobs, good schools, good health, strong communities. Uh, but in order to achieve that great state, we need uh, good, reliable, uh, and factual information uh, for policymakers and the public. So our job at, at OK Policy is to provide that, uh, provide the facts and to advocate for fair and effective public policy. And what I've learned very quickly is that civil justice has a very, very uh, deep impact on uh, the type of life that people live. So we're, uh, we're trying to uh, use data to inform uh, ways to make that better. It's good stuff. Anna, I know you're doing some pretty exciting stuff at the University of Tulsa and some of this work that you've done, and 
I've watched it firsthand. Let our visitors know about your experience and what you're doing through the clinical experience at the University of Tulsa. So as a clinical law professor, my job is to teach students how to practice law, law students how to practice law and and be lawyers by actually practicing law. Um, So I think probably a lot of the listeners who are lawyers or in law school are familiar with the clinical model, and and that's what I do. And part of my job, um, the most important part of my job is being an educator and a teacher. Um, But the second part of my job, and it's a value that a lot of uh, clinical educators share, is a value of public service and making sure that the cases and the projects that our students do um, are serving the public good and addressing access to justice. And what kind of number of cases are you working on? So clinical education, it's, they're actually really, really low volume because our goal is to teach uh, law students how to actually do the work um, from start to finish. I'll give you an example. So my students um, often handle domestic violence protective order matters. Those are cases that take about typically about two weeks from start to finish. And each law student typically spends, each law student typically spends uh, 40 to 60 hours a week in that two-week period prepping that case for trial or negotiated settlement, but getting ready to, getting ready to go to court and be ready to put a case on. So it takes an, a huge amount of investment um, in supervisor time and in student time to get a, law, a, you know, a third semester or fourth semester law student to the place where they're ready to, to present a case in court and handle all of the things that they're having to manage on the fly while they're doing that. So it sounds to me like that the law school clinical experience can be helpful, but essentially you're in an educational setting and low number of persons actually could be served by that environment, mm-hmm. although it's meaning, meaningful work. We serve clients who would not otherwise get service, but because uh, the student-to-faculty ratio in a clinic, because it's so intensive, um, there's one of me and typically eight to nine of them um, handling a number of cases over the course of a semester. Um, and so the reality is that clinical legal education is not in a position to sort of staunch the bleeding of access to justice and, and, and address unmet legal needs. And I, I think I'll I'll raise the other hat that I wear in addition to being a clinical teacher um, is as an access to justice researcher and as someone who studies the criminal or the civil justice system. And one of the things that I've noticed in doing that work is that when it comes to lay people, lay people do not understand that the civil justice system exists. They don't know what it is. When you say those words to them, civil justice system, they're sort of their eyes cross. Every thinking, thoughtful person I know who, say, you know, reads a newspaper a couple times a week knows a lot about the criminal justice system. Lay people do. They understand that the system is flawed and needs to be changed. And they might even be able to come up with two to three policy recommendations, just your average sort of person who reads the paper, about how to change that system. But when you ask them about the civil justice system, what you learn is that lay people assume that, that in civil cases you have a right to counsel in the same way you do on the criminal side. And so in terms of getting um, the public interested in broader groups of of people other than just lawyers interested in access to justice, we face a major sort of hurdle of, of understanding. Well, Ryan, back to you on these numbers that you've mentioned in these small claim cases. Do you have any data that would suggest that persons who have representation have better outcomes? What we know is, is that they certainly do. In small claims courts, what we see is that almost no one has representation, so it's difficult to to draw any conclusions about those who do. Uh, talking with legal aid attorneys and, and uh, people who are working on the issues day to day, it's clear that um, if they can force uh, the plaintiffs to even to fill out their forms uh, adequately, to, to just have a check on uh, the process itself, 
and you know, not to mention the exercise of, of the the rights of the defendant, um, it's it's very clear that that more representation is going to uh, at least slow down uh, this extremely high volume of cases just by forcing that accountability, that oversight that the that the civil justice system desperately needs. So if I'm understanding you from based upon those numbers, if these are families with children or other people, we're talking about potentially five to ten thousand people each year being disrupted somehow in in the housing situation through the legal process. In Tulsa County, it's about 800 people a month um, that, are, that are evicted from their homes or more. So we're talking about a very high volume. Uh, we, we see that Tulsa County has the 11th highest eviction rate in the country. Uh, Oklahoma County has the 20th highest uh, in the country among uh, the bigger cities. So you know, in a state with low housing costs, uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that we would have such terrible eviction numbers if there weren't big problems in how we're doing evictions uh, compared to other places. Anna, I saw you were shaking your head with this, so I guess you have some experience <laughs> with this firsthand through the clinical uh, experience? So no, so I haven't, I haven't handled eviction cases, but I s- study how people experience the civil justice system, and we do have you know decades of research that suggests that people fare better when they have lawyers to assist them with their legal problems. But we tend to, when we when we as lawyers think about the impact of representation by a lawyer and the role of legal services, we tend to think almost solely about courts. Um, and that's there's a problem in, in doing that, and we're actually missing a massive market opportunity um, as a profession. If you picture an iceberg, the very tippy top of that iceberg, 14 to 24%, very, very top, that's the percentage of civil legal problems that are ever taken to a lawyer or a court. If you picture the rest of the iceberg, which is somewhere around 80% of the iceberg, it's underwater. Those legal problems never get to a lawyer or a court. And what most people do in those situations when they have a civil legal problem is they do nothing or they ask a friend. They do not think of going to lawyers because they don't understand that their problems are legal. And, th- and I'm happy to talk more about that. But the person who developed that body of research is a woman named Dr. Rebecca Sandifer, a sociologist at the University of Illinois. And she just recently won a MacArthur Genius Grant actually last week um, for that groundbreaking research. So there's a real opportunity that bottom 80% of the iceberg are people who have legal problems and could use lawyer services and are not getting them because they would never think to go to a lawyer. And so there's something we need to be thinking about as a profession about meeting that need. It's interesting. As we start to wrap up here, Brian, can you tell us something that you found in doing the research and doing the work that you've done that was the most surprising to you? I mean, this has been really nothing but surprises for me. Having been one of those people that uh, Professor, uh, that Anna was talking uh, about just a few minutes ago, uh, I didn't really know, uh, you know, what happened in the civil justice system. I mean, what that looked like. Uh, it, it was, it was like, Probably in my mind, it was something like uh, Judge Judy. We had a couple people, probably lower income class, just fighting over the, you know, a broken uh, fence or something. What's really been surprising to me is just the volume of cases that have such enormous impact uh, on people's lives being just shuffled through with very little check with, uh, you know, just throwing people out of their homes with very little, very, I mean, absolutely no due process. And that's, uh, you know, it's a very deep 
fairness issue uh, that I th- that is starting to get more uh, more understanding um, because of the work of uh, people like Anna and uh, and this conference and Matthew Desmond's book Evicted and uh, you know I think it's all very shocking uh, and and that's the way it should be. Anna. Mm-hmm. When you're talking to students about their obligation to provide services to clients who may not other who may not be able to afford legal services, what's your 10-second speech to them? What's what's your quick way to let them know that that's the thing to do? I don't have one. And I don't have one because I rather than giving my students a 10-second speech about it, they come to the clinic and they experience um, what it's like to represent someone who wouldn't otherwise have counsel. And through that experience, their values, if they didn't already value um, providing pro bono service or serving low-income clients, those values get triggered in that process. And it, by virtue of doing the work, they then become engaged in it. And so I, it's just giving them the opportunity to experience it, giving them a framework, um, a structure in our classroom to have conversations about the things that they're noticing and feeling and thinking. Um, and so they kind of do it themselves, you know, if given the opportunity, you sort of just wind them up and let them go and, um, create a, you know, create a structure within which they can do that kind of thinking and, and, and it's there. It's actually amazing how easy it is to get students excited and activated on access to justice. And to that end, one of the things that consistently surprises me is how resistant, um, so many of my colleagues in legal academia are to teaching and thinking about these issues, um, that are so important. Well, it sounds to me like you're saying that to our lawyer listeners that, they can self-motivate themselves to get into this and that awareness that your students are getting, they can become self-aware even now and in yeah, their practice. I think, I think that's right. You know, um, recall your local, local legal aid agency and ask if they can hook you up with a pro bono client. One of the things that's so uh, wonderful about partnering with a legal aid agency, if you're interested in doing um, pro bono work or even low-cost sliding scale work, is that legal services agencies will train you will help you figure out how to do the cases. You know, if you're a, a transactional lawyer, but you want to go down and help people out in family court or on an eviction docket, your legal services agency will help you figure out how to do that. You don't have to do it all yourself. This has been really great having the two of you here today. Before we close out, I want to have each of you let our listeners know how to get a hold of you in case they want to follow up with you. So Ryan, can you tell our listeners how they might reach out to you? Yeah, our, uh, our website is openjustice.okpolicy.org. My email address is there. It's r-g-e-n-t-z-l-e-r at okpolicy.org. Uh, and we're always looking for ways that we can partner with uh, people who are doing the hard on the ground work um, and try to make their jobs easier with, uh, with data. Great. And Anna? This is Anna. Um, the best way to reach me is to go to your browser and type in Anna E. Carpenter and then the word Tulsa. And the thing that will come up is my bio page from my university website. All of my contact information is there, but I'll give you my email address. It's A-N-N-A-Carpenter, C-A-R-P-E-N-T-E-R at utulsa.edu. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank our guests for being with us today. And I want to thank our listeners for being with us today. And if you like our podcast, you can go to Apple Podcast and rate us. I'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.